Pro-Palestinian protests have popped up on college campuses across the country. But from the eyes of students, what are we missing? From the outside, these protests are painted as really violent when that couldn't be further from the truth. I'm Brittany Luce, host of NPR's It's Been a Minute, and I'm inviting you to hear from student journalists who see what the rest of us cannot. On It's Been a Minute from NPR. Hey, I'm Kelly McEvers, and this is Embedded from NPR. And today is the final episode of our series, All the Only Ones. In the first two episodes, reporter and host Lane Kaplan-Levinson took us back to the first half of the 20th century. In the 1920s and 30s, when gender transition through medicine first became possible. In the 50s and 60s, when gender clinics began opening up across the U.S. Now, in part three, we will go back to the 70s and 80s, which was a time of increased visibility for trans people and increasing backlash. Just a note before we get started, historical figures in this series are represented by actors. The actors are reading these people's real words from letters or published writing. We don't know the names of the patients because of laws that protect their privacy, so we refer to them by the pseudonyms assigned by their doctors. This episode also mentions suicide and includes profanity. Okay, here's Lane with the final episode of All the Only Ones. This series is about young people. But we're starting this last episode with someone who's a little older than who you've been hearing from so far. My name is Charles Elenfeld. I am 86 years old. <laughs> I just say that because I think it's an accomplishment to be this old. Dr. Charles Elenfeld is a retired psychiatrist who I met up with at his vacation home. I'm ready for my tour. An RV in the Berkshires. Okay, I'm going first because it's easier that way. Okay. This is our wet bath, wet shower, and we have a closet there. Charles learned something about growing old from an important mentor, a man who changed the trajectory of not only his career, but his entire life. Harry Benjamin lived to be 101 and a half. He practiced probably until he was 90. Harry Benjamin is the doctor we heard about in the last episode, the one who started treating trans patients in New York in the 1950s. In 1969, Charles got a call from another doctor connected to Harry Benjamin's practice. Who said, would I be interested in working and to practice with transgendered people? And I said, sure, why not? What did I know? And really, was nothing, actually. Really, I had never met a transgender person. This was just not part of my world. But he had some background in endocrinology, which is why he got that call and decided to accept the offer. I wanted to talk to Charles because of his relationships with trans patients he saw during that time, back in the 70s. The things people did to help themselves was absolutely mind-boggling. There was no question in my mind that they were determined. Including trans teenagers. There was one patient who was 17, and she transitioned in high school. This teenager had her gender affirmation surgery more than 50 years ago, in the 1970s, when there was a groundswell of new medical practices offering gender-affirming care. This growth came as doctors in the field were publishing papers, holding conferences, 
and starting to come to a consensus about how to best care for trans youth. But as we've been talking about in this series, when you listen to the news today... And it's dangerous for kids to be involved in this. You'd think none of that ever happened. It is also a human experiment on children and teens. And definitely not half a century ago. We don't even really know some of the outcomes long term. This is All the Only Ones, a three-part series about American trans youth over the last century. I'm your host, Lane Kaplan-Levinson. In this final episode, we look at the little-known and often ignored history of trans medical care during the 1970s and how it's at the groundwork for today. It's also a decade of increased visibility for trans people. But that visibility turns out to be a double-edged sword. Before we go back in time, we start with a Gen Z teenager who's able to get the care she wants, the same type of care that was being recommended by doctors 50 years ago. When I was probably like eight, nine, I had a book it was like this big compilation of stories uh, that involved each of the Greek gods. There was this story of this young prince, I think. He was out hunting and he happened to stumble across the goddess Artemis bathing naked in a lake. I guess there was this thing where like no man could see the goddess Artemis naked and continue living. But for some reason... Artemis took pity on this man and instead of smiting him she turned him into a girl and then he joined the hunt and like became a girl that hunts mystical creatures and after reading that story I wanted so badly to like stumble across some naked goddess bathing so that they could turn me into a girl I mean that would be a lot easier <laughs> yeah <I> would. <laughs> yeah Christine Worley grew up in the age of social media, but it was this ancient myth that spoke to her. So she spent a lot of her childhood in Albuquerque, New Mexico, searching. Searching for Artemis in every body of water she could find, even... My grandma's shower. Because she desperately wanted to be turned into a girl. But at some point, around her tween years, the searching stopped. I was very repressed in middle school in, like, lots of ways, not just regarding sexuality and gender identity. I kind of just repressed all feelings. Uh, I kind of just wanted to just be like, feelings are stupid, so I'm just going to try my hardest to get rid of all feelings. Christine stopped thinking about Artemis, about gender, about much, period. Fast forward a few years to 2022. It's Christine's senior year of high school. She's dating someone, and suddenly, the searching comes back. It starts with a normal date night at Christine's house. They're watching a movie. To some extent, doing what teenagers do when they watch a movie at night. <laughs> um, and then it was time to get her home, so I drove her home 
when I got home and was like getting ready for bed, I noticed that she had left her bra at my house. And it was like a halfway between a sports bra and a regular bra. It was a gray, I think, Nike. Christine put on the bra, took a selfie, and texted it to her girlfriend, kind of as a joke, saying, Hey, I think you forgot something. But when she looked at herself in the mirror, I really liked how it looked. And then I was like, well, what if I also stuff some tissues in the cups? And I was like, wow, this looks so cool. And like, I did not look good. You know, like my hair was a mess. I was literally just like wearing a bra and some pants. I don't know, that was like the best looking I'd ever felt. It was just like in a t-shirt and shorts with a bra full of tissues. A few days later, Christine told her girlfriend everything. I was like, okay, this is definitely like 100% who I am. Christine asked for new pronouns. She started using she, her pronouns for me, and then shortly afterwards, I, I picked out the name Christine. Soon after that, Christine came out to her family. She wanted them to know, but she also wanted help getting connected to a therapist. Her mom was supportive and found someone who specialized in working with young trans patients. She definitely did the right thing. Her mom also supported Christine's desire to get hormone therapy, something her dad had more initial hesitation about. He was just like, you're so young to be making a decision like this and your brain isn't fully developed and I just, I really want to make sure you're not, you're not making a mistake. What did you say back? Like, what was your response to that? I was just like, well, I know I want this. So what if my brain is young? I'm 100% sure. You know, like, this is the thing I've wanted the most my entire life. I don't, I don't think I'm going to be wrong about it. Christine got on hormones at 17, as a minor, with her parents' consent. Her first appointment was pretty standard. Vitals, routine blood work. It was pretty easy, and my doctor is non-binary, so they had first-hand experience with things like that, so they understood the importance of getting it started quickly. Getting HRT started, hormone replacement therapy. So you had this realization, and then started hormones maybe like six weeks later? Yeah, six, seven weeks later, something like that. What was that waiting period like? Looking back, especially now that I've heard like stories of other trans people who are like in the closet for years, it's like, wow, that was, that was pretty quick. But during the time, it just, it felt like forever. When Christine came out to her family, she was just a few months away from graduating high school and heading off to college in a new city. She considered waiting until then to start her transition. Next year when I'm meeting new people for college, I can just introduce myself as Christine, she, they, you know? But I think eventually it was just like, no, I have to tell people. So then I I posted something on Instagram. I think it was just like, my pronouns are now she, they, and a trans flag emoji or something like that. Almost everybody in my class follows me. So then almost everybody in my class ended up seeing it. And I got a lot of very supportive responses. 
That made me feel good. The care Christine is receiving, like hormone therapy, is what teens with parental approval in the 70s also would have gotten. But with one big difference. Instead of giving them the choice to be open about their trans identity, doctors would have told them to bury it. We'll be right back. Why is everyone so obsessed with traditional wives or trad wives on social media? This week, we're talking about the viral videos of women making marshmallows and mozzarella from scratch and how behind the sheen of calm kitchens and cute fits, there's some interesting pessimism about our modern world. And that's worth digging into. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. Okay, close your eyes for a second. Now imagine you're on your dream vacation. No work calls to answer, no text messages to respond to, just your suitcase and an opportunity. The opportunity to just take yourself out of your routine and travel deeper. How to actually take that dream trip. That's on the Life Kit Podcast from NPR. This message comes from PRX. In the new season of Long Shadow, host Garrett Graff delves into the evolution of the debate over firearms in the U.S. from the founding fathers to the present day. Find Long Shadow in Guns We Trust wherever you get your podcasts. It did stop raining for a while. Yeah, I know. You know, it rained a little when I first was driving up, and then it actually didn't rain most of my drive. From where did you come today? When I met Charles Elenfeld, the doctor who worked with Harry Benjamin, what I was doing as a reporter wasn't all that different from what he used to do in his job back in the 70s, talking to people. To get some sense of how this person was feeling. How long had they been feeling this way? Did they dress in a way that matched their gender identity? Had they been living as the gender they wanted to transition into? Had they tried to see other doctors who usually said, get out of my office? So my question for you is, why weren't you one of the doctors that said, get out of my office? I, because I was gay. Charles wasn't out yet, not even to himself. He had actually just gotten married to a woman the same month he started working at Dr. Benjamin's practice. Although being out as gay in the 70s came with its risks, Charles felt his trans patients were experiencing this on a different level. They were risking their jobs if they were married, had kids, and went through, risked their families, uh, jail, all of these things. Being themselves, being allowed to express who they were, this was worth all of the sacrifice. I said, you know, these patients are basically putting their whole lives on their line. They're giving up everything they have to be able to live the way they feel that's true to themselves. And what do I have to do? I just have to say I'm gay. Which he eventually did to his family, his friends, his colleagues, and his wife. They divorced and stayed friends for the rest of her life. 
He's now married to a man who's been his partner for 47 years. Meeting the people who showed up at Dr. Benjamin's practice changed Charles' life. But he wasn't always able to help. Even though that practice was much more welcoming to trans patients than a typical doctor's office in the 70s, they were still gatekeepers. They decided who got help and who didn't. And there were plenty who didn't. I saw identical twin girls who were 14. They were absolutely dead set on having reassignment. And I had to say, no, you have to wait till you're 18. And I saw them several times. Nothing changed. Do you remember at the time wishing that you could help them? I did, yeah. I would like to have been able to, because I had no doubt that they uh, would eventually do it. And I thought, why do we have to continue this process when it's just going to get worse? But they didn't have parental consent. And without that, medical care like this was a no-go. Same as today. It was just the consensus of people that there was too much of a chance of doing something that was not going to be successful later on. There was this fear among doctors that young patients would come to regret their transition, despite the fact that even back in the 70s, Charles wrote, quote, It has been established that most of us, by the time we're four, have a clear sex identification. In other words, research showed that most of us know our gender identity by the time we're four years old. Today, many experts would argue that age is even younger. But in the 1970s, and now, many adults, including doctors, still want kids to wait until they're older before they start medically transitioning. The problem is that you cannot take a five-year-old and say to the parent, I tell you what, come back when he's 15 and we'll talk about it some more. Life doesn't work that way. The question is, then, are you going to allow them to experience changes in their body which will cause them more pain as they get older? Some young people had written to doctors in the 60s where they make those exact claims. This is historian Jules Gill-Peterson. She's been helping us tell the history of trans youth in the U.S. throughout the series. We can remember back to some of those letters. You know, there was that trans teenage girl who's saying, I'm already approaching, you know, six feet two, and that's okay, but I don't want to be taller than that. Or I'm worried about my voice getting deeper every day, or I'm growing facial hair. If you start me on estrogen now, we could get in front of and stop that, that puberty effects from taking place. We now have a lot of data that shows that trans kids experience more mental distress if they have to go through puberty as the sex they were assigned at birth. An important new study out of Stanford University School of Medicine it shows that transgender youth who get access to gender-affirming treatments have better mental health outcomes than those who wait later in life. A study from the Journal of Adolescent Health found a strong link between gender-affirming hormone therapy and a lower risk of suicide and depression for transgender youth. More than half of trans youth have seriously considered ending their lives. And according to a study by the American Medical Association, that number decreases by 73% when those kids receive gender-affirming care. Like most medical interventions, these treatments can have side effects, but many are either reversible 
or people decide they're worth the risk compared to the alternative. In the six years Charles worked with Harry Benjamin, there was an exceptional case of a young person who the practice didn't force to wait until she was 21 to get treatment. It was the 17-year-old girl he talked about at the beginning of the episode. Charles isn't allowed to share her real name because of laws around medical privacy. He referred to her as Joanna in historical records. Her mother had been aware of her wanting to be a girl for many years. And I think had been looking for someone to help. Somehow she got hold of Harry. They came, and we listened to the story, and we thought that this is something we've heard many times before, and uh, agreed, as a trial, we would give some estrogen and see what happened. And everything seemed to go well. Her mother transferred her to another high school where she could enter as a girl. It was a test of how she'd feel living as a girl before surgery. And it worked. She was very happy. And it must have been at least a year or more of this going on. Uh, We did refer her for surgery, and she had surgery. She married. She has a child who, at this point, must be, I guess, in his 30s, perhaps. And she's had a marriage that's probably lasted 35 years. Charles knows these types of details because he still hears from Joanna. For many years now, she sends me a Christmas card every year. She got treatment that was not really available to anyone else. And I think it's because Harry was convinced, uh, after seeing her and seeing her mother, that uh, this was how she had to live her life. I think Joanna really speaks to this contradiction of the 1970s. On the one hand, it's a very unambiguous example from now 50 years ago of a young trans person transitioning. There was nothing particularly complicated or dramatic about it. But those two key questions of having parental support and having the money, I mean, those are just insurmountable barriers for all the other kids who didn't have what Joanna had. And so in that sense, she's very atypical in that she actually got access to what was possible. Jules says Joanna's story reflects a larger shift in doctors' thinking in the 1970s. They're like, oh, I see why so many teenagers are so motivated to medically transition. Adolescence is the big precipitating factor for seeking out hormones because of puberty. Because how difficult and distressing puberty can be. For the transsexual, adolescence is a time of crisis. These are the words of the late psychiatrist Lawrence Newman. We had a voice actor read from an article Dr. Newman wrote. He saw patients at UCLA's Gender Identity Clinic, which was another major hub for gender medicine during this period. In 1970, he published an academic article about treating trans youth. That's where he wrote about this crisis for trans teens— including a 15-year-old patient who he gives the pseudonym of Georgina. Last year, I started dressing up and going out. I waited until everyone was out of the house, and then I put on my sister's dress and shoes. I used some eyeliner that I had bought, and I used my sister's mascara. I knew what I was doing was dangerous, but I felt that time was growing short. Her body was starting to change in ways she didn't want. You know, the hair growing on my legs and underarms, 
I was desperate. I planned to live as much as I could as a girl before the changes made it impossible. In the article, Dr. Newman concludes that forcing young people like Georgina to stay in their assigned genders and delaying their transition was not a reasonable treatment strategy. It is no treatment to force the youthful transsexual to remain in a gender role which he finds detestable and impossible for him. Dr. Newman used dated language, misgendered patients, and had misconceptions about transness. But ultimately, he supported medical transition for young people. And so by the 70s, clinicians are finally putting all of that together 50 years ago that it's extremely, entirely appropriate to start hormones during adolescence because that's when puberty happens. Dr. Newman had patients like Georgina go through the same sort of process that Joanna did under the care of Charles and Harry Benjamin. Georgina did a trial of living as a girl at home. When that worked well, she started taking estrogen. She went on to start at a new school, and the principal there agreed to keep Georgina's transition secret and to register her as a girl. And all other documentation she carried was changed, indicating that she was a female. The family destroyed all photographs of Georgina as a boy. Some people still choose to transition this way, without really talking about it. But back in the 70s, there wasn't much of a choice. Living kind of under the radar was encouraged by doctors. They wanted you to blend in. They didn't really want people to know that you were trans. And their goal with transition was for you to be indistinguishable from anyone else in the world. Those who could read as cisgender might find a form of safety in that. But it came at the cost of reinforcing conformity and the gender binary, and leaving out those who were unable or unwilling to blend in as cis. There was this kind of strategic invisibility that was very common. And so I think that's part of the challenge. There may have been trans kids in your community. You probably went to school with them. You know, you may have even be friends with them, but you may never have known that they were trans. Precisely because there was a lot of pressure to be sort of quiet or discreet about it. Some teens had to be discreet for other reasons. When the established, record-keeping institutions wouldn't treat them, teenagers found other ways to transition anyway, through methods that didn't leave a clear trace for historians. There's always been a black market treatment for hormones. We knew the doctors not far away, prescribing almost unquestioned. They were basically selling hormones. I remember being at a... um, gender meeting in San Francisco, like Harry Benjamin gender meeting in San Francisco back in the 70s. And one surgeon from the New York area just got up and said, well, I had people come up um, on the verge of suicide, threatening suicide, where where I have to do the surgery. This doctor was willing to do that and uh, got paid his fee. Charles understands why a trans person would have gone that route. Who's to say that that person was wrong? in this instance, or in any other instance. Some teens would just tell doctors what they knew the doctors wanted to hear. Like one girl who came into UCLA to ask for gender affirmation surgery. She had a penis and male chromosomes, but she was also developing breasts. She denied ever taking hormones, so doctors considered her intersex. 
And so they help her finish transitioning, change her name. She gets surgery. Then a few years later, she comes back and says, hey, I was lying. I tricked you. I actually was just taking my mom's estrogen. The only reason we know this woman is trans is because she voluntarily shared that she'd misled her doctors. Otherwise, her transition would have been invisible to everyone. No doubt there are countless others who did the same thing but never told anyone else about it. And even if they had, their doctors would have encouraged them to keep it to themselves. What these kids help us see is the tip of an iceberg. And we may not be able to go back and catalog all of the trans children from 100 years ago, but we can be sure that to assume children back then were not trans, that's an error. As young trans people eventually become more visible, it becomes easier for them to see themselves. But being visible can also mean being a visible target. The intense media and political fascination with trans youth is taking an enormous toll. Stay with us. Taylor Swift has dropped a new album. She is the biggest pop star in the world, and everything she does makes news. I gasped. I was like, oh my God, I've been there, and you can identify with it. For a breakdown of Taylor Swift and her new album, The Tortured Poets Department, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. Jasmine Morris here from the StoryCorps podcast. Our latest season is called My Way. Stories of people who found a rhythm all their own and marched to it throughout their lives. Consequences and other people's opinions be damned. You won't believe the courage and audacity in these stories. Hear them on the StoryCorps podcast from NPR. Summer is for going to the movie theater because it's too hot to stay home. It's for driving with the windows down, listening to your favorite music. It's for stretching out while you're on vacation to gobble up a TV show. For a guide to some of the TV, movies, and music we are most excited about this summer, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. In the 1970s, many trans folks were told that the safest path was to fly under the radar. But Jules points out that at the same time, transness was gaining a whole new visibility in pop songs. Plucked her eyebrows on the way, shaved her legs, and then he was a she. She says, hey, babe. Walk on the wild Take side. Walk on the wild side. Song about Lola. In sports. Her name, of course, is Renee Richards. I've applied to play in the women's singles at Forest Hills. There are some kind of famous trans women circulating around Andy Warhol. Warhol's newly discovered star, Candy. I call myself Candy Warhol now. <laughs> trans women in particular are seen kind of as muses, as countercultural icons, sometimes as punks, is really exciting. This new level of trans visibility went beyond mainstream media and pop culture. You have a huge explosion of radical trans activists in the wake of Stonewall. Activists like Sylvia Rivera. I have been beaten. I have had my nose broken. I have been thrown in jail. I have lost my job. I have lost my apartment. Who are demanding things like transition should be available free 
That hormone should be available for free on demand. The women have tried to fight for their sex changes or to become women of the women's liberation. Trans activists were really invested in visibility in complex ways. And that came with a whole new set of challenges for young trans people. They're really starting to find more intense interest in them might lead actually to more restrictions, as with the invention of gender identity disorder. Jules is talking about a change to the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, a.k.a. the DSM. Which is sort of the diagnostic Bible of psychiatry and mental health care. At the time, the DSM labeled homosexuality as a psychiatric disorder. In the early 70s, gay activists protested the American Psychiatric Association to get homosexuality taken out of the DSM. At the APA's 1972 annual meeting, Dr. John Fryer delivered a speech that made history. As homosexual psychiatrists, therefore, we must use our skills and wisdom to help all of them and ourselves grow to be comfortable with that little piece of humanity called homosexuality. The next year, gay activists protested the APA's meeting. And they were very successful. All of a sudden, to be gay was no longer a mental illness in the United States. It was a huge victory, except... It was in part achieved by selling out trans people. Those very same activists who fought for that victory so hard were very anxious about the lingering residue of stigma. Being a trans person of color, like Sylvia Rivera, made speaking out even harder. Rivera wasn't allowed to speak at a 1973 gay pride rally in New York. When she grabbed the mic anyway, she was booed. I've lost my apartment for gay liberation, and you all treat me this way? What the fuck's wrong with you all? Think about that. Jules says many gay and lesbian activists left trans people behind. By saying, we're normal men and women. We just happen to have a different attachment, a different romantic style. But otherwise, we're the same as everyone else. They said, there's nothing wrong with us, gays and lesbians. We're not sick. You want to know who's sick? Trans people. This isn't to say that the gay liberation activists single-handedly convinced the American Psychiatric Association of this idea. But just a few years after removing homosexuality from the DSM, the APA, the ones who have the power to make these decisions, turns around and invents new diagnoses for trans people. In 1980, a new category was created, gender identity disorders, which included the diagnosis of transsexualism. And particularly, gender identity disorder of childhood. A new diagnosis just for children who don't conform to gender stereotypes. Around the same time, there was other backsliding on trans acceptance. The Johns Hopkins Gender Identity Clinic, which had been the first clinic of its kind, shut down in 1979. The chief of psychiatry at Hopkins at that time led the closure. He said that by providing surgeries, quote, Hopkins was fundamentally cooperating with a mental illness. Another gender clinic in Oklahoma had managed to fly under the radar for several years. But then local religious leaders caught wind of it, and it was forced to close in 1977. 
Other gender clinics also closed in the years before and after Hopkins. At Northwestern, Stanford, the Cleveland Clinic, University of Colorado, the list goes on. These were serious setbacks to trans acceptance and access to care. But despite these closures, gender-affirming medicine had evolved in important ways in the 1970s. Throughout the decade, there were growing options beyond the gender clinic model. In the 60s, it had been more extreme. Either you were in at a gender clinic or you're just kind of out of luck. But in the 70s, there's so many more providers who've heard of trans people, who've at least read Harry Benjamin's book, who've maybe read some of the other studies in medical literature being published, and so are perfectly willing to work with trans people. At least if you had the money. And if you were a minor, had parents who were willing to take you to a doctor. By this point, it technically could be Your pediatrician, you know, your primary care doctor could prescribe hormones if they knew enough about it or if they read some of the medical literature. Young people like Joanna could even get gender affirmation surgery. It's not exceptionally common, but this was something that was just so much harder to do before the 1970s. The decade was a real mix of access for some but not others, of broader visibility but also being a visible target, which kind of sounds a lot like the time we're in now. Pixar Animation Studios have just introduced its first ever non-binary character. Hollywood's first transgender superhero. ...is considering a number of bills impacting trans... ...banning certain medical treatments for minors with gender dysphoria. That one definitely concerns me, considering I am actively on the waiting list for getting puberty blocked. the world are celebrating International Transgender Day of Visibility. ...is the first transgender... And he sued the school board after they prohibited him from using she the boys' wrestling. play on the girls' tennis team, but a recent Florida law campaign last year, over a dozen transgender people were violently attacked or killed. I know who I'm supposed to be. Why do you want to take that away? I think visibility is vexed. The intense media and political fascination with trans youth is taking an enormous toll on actually existing trans youth um, in a way that I think is relatively new. This is Hill Malatino, professor of women's gender and sexuality studies and philosophy at Penn State University. So there's a phobic reaction that I think some non-trans folks have to increased trans visibility. They're reacting not just to increased visibility, but also to a society and specifically a medical community that's more accepting of trans people. The medical establishment in the United States is generally increasingly trans-affirming, even in conservative states. We're in a situation now where there is intense pushback that aims to limit access to sort of newly or increasingly democratized technologies of transition, hormonally and surgically. It's a familiar cycle. A marginalized group gains some acceptance, which triggers a backlash. And that backlash makes them even more visible. But I also think that there are really specific architects to anti-trans pieces of legislation that are currently circulating. And I think it's very much politically calculated obsession. And I think that that and that increased media coverage of anti-trans legislation 
has meant that all of a sudden, right, every time you turn on the news, every time you look at a newspaper, there's just reporting on anti-trans legislation. Being vilified by politicians isn't just an unwelcome form of visibility. It can be dangerous, even life-threatening. Oftentimes, the visibility that folks see is headlines in which someone has been killed or harmed in certain kinds of ways. This is Marquise Bay, professor of African-American studies, Black feminist theory, and transgender studies at Northwestern University. And so when the primary visibility is one in which the people who are like you are being exterminated or being harmed or being maligned, then that doesn't make you feel very good about your understanding of yourself and the possibilities of your future as well. Marquise also says it's hard for young people to see themselves in the future when they don't see themselves in the past. One of the things that having a historical precedent does is to show people that you exist, that you exist in the world, uh, you have existed in the world, you are real. Having more of these stories emerge will allow us to feel that, yeah, I am I'm somebody and have been somebody, and I have forebears and antecedents because then people can understand that their lives are possible. But sometimes, even positive forms of visibility can be complicated. Trans representation has definitely helped so many young people put words to their gender identity. But there can be a downside. Trans kids can feel like the only thing people see about them is their transness. That's what Christine, the teenager who grew up searching for the goddess Artemis, has been wrestling with. I'm really happy that I'm transgender, and it's something that I'm proud of, but I'm looking forward to when it doesn't, like, dictate every day of my life. Shortly after she came out as trans, she graduated high school with Christine on her diploma and went off to college roughly four months into her journey on hormone replacement therapy. Now she's in college, and for the first time in her life, she's living with lots of other trans and queer people. I cannot stress just how amazing it is to be hanging out with with trans people who have all had, like, the same experiences as me. She sent voice memos this past year updating me on how she was doing. I don't know. It's just nice spending all of my time with people that are are like me instead of trying to fit in with people that are not like me. That sense of community has helped Christine feel so much more comfortable in her own transness. But I'm looking forward to when it's not, like, the defining factor about me. Christine doesn't want to hide her transness. But also, she doesn't want her transness to be the only thing that people see about her. It'd be nice if I was a girl first and then trans, instead of trans first and then a girl. I'm like a little nerdy girl who like likes geography and video games and like is super interested in languages and traveling, and things like that. That's like a full personality. Like, that's like, I didn't even say the word trans once, and I totally described, like, a very interesting person. So it's like, it's not necessary for this thing to be 
like the central part of my identity, and I don't want it to be the central part of my identity. Compared to the other young people in this series, Christine had a relatively smooth gender transition. She had the support of her parents and most of her extended family, friends, and classmates. She was also able to access gender-affirming care quickly from a doctor who understood her experience. But Christine ran into an issue that she probably wouldn't have if she had transitioned back in the 70s, and even in more recent decades. I mean, there was something about the experience of growing up in the 90s where there wasn't this intense political fixation and how it meant maybe I didn't really realize that I was trans at a very young age. But I also was able to have an adolescence that was not entirely preoccupied with questions of of transness. And I think that that's, that's really hard for trans youth in this moment. When I asked Hill what he thought would help trans kids today, he said part of the solution is to not only challenge the way we think about transness, but gender altogether. I understand for some people it feels very strange to say a 14-year-old can make decisions about gender that are long-lasting, right? Can decide to go on blockers, can decide to take gender-affirming hormones. But on some level, I feel like if we give folks the right tools to make these decisions, it's not that big a deal. Tools like support from your community and access to accurate information. It's become really important to me to de-dramatize gender. You could just turn this back on Hill and say that, well, if gender isn't such a big deal, kids can just wait to transition when they're older. But what Hill is arguing is that we dramatize the wrong things. I just want to repeat what you said, just the idea of de-dramatizing gender. Yeah, I just, I'm not trying to be flippant about it, but staying the gender that you were assigned at birth, or not, who cares? Like, really. The bigger deal is whether somebody is miserable inhabiting their body or not. And miserable as they navigate the world because of the kind of body that they've been sort of forced or coerced into inhabiting or not. That's a big deal. What chords do you know? I know C, G, um, A minor, F, D. After talking to a bunch of teenagers, I wanted to hear from a really young person who was at the very start of their gender journey. Do you know any, do you know any songs? Best day of my life if I know the chords in a while. I met Billy, who's six by reaching out to a local queer youth group in Washington, D.C. Their parents got back to me, and a few weeks later, I went over to their house in Capitol Hill. I wanted to conduct an interview. Billy wanted to... Play a game. What do you want to play? We have a lot of games. All right. We played Guess Who, but a version with cats and dogs that I don't remember being around in my day. Okay, one rule. You are not allowed to ask if it's a cat or a dog. Because I'm tired of explaining what what is a cat and a dog. Billy won. One, two, three, four, five. Okay, let's go. 
Then Billy took me upstairs to their room and showed me some of their early childhood photo albums. This is me being born. We started from the beginning. Mom was the first person to ever hold me. I grabbed the album from when they were three years old, the age I was told Billy came out to their family. Do you remember anything about this time of, like, you know, looking at this or, like, wearing some of these clothes and being like, I don't want to wear these clothes? Like... I don't know. Because I can only remember for about a year, two years or three years. Oh, and this is at the zoo. Mm-hmm. That is a tiger mask. Oh, carousel. Billy wasn't biting, so I got more to the point. They're non-binary, like me, so I asked them... How'd you come to know this gender identity? First from that, everyone thought I was a guy. I felt like a boy, and a lot of times... Um, I yelled at whoever asked me if I was, was actually saw if I was a boy. Then, like, I was like that for three years. Then I was like, I'm actually non-binary because, like, I am. Yeah. Hmm. Does that making sound? Yes. Oh, very interesting. <laughs> what else do you want to tell the microphone? That the microphone is very fuzzy. Well, let me ask you this. Cause That's mostly how the conversation went. Short responses, interest in the mic, requests to play. Honestly, I didn't think I'd be able to use any of this interview. We spent the remainder of the afternoon making a huge chocolate chip cookie cake, for God's sakes. We need three eggs. But then okay. it dawned on me. Of course this was how that afternoon was going to go. Billy is six years old. And anyway, isn't that the whole point? This kid in a monogrammed apron who had to stand on a step stool to reach the kitchen counter was unintentionally showing me exactly what it means for gender to not be such a big deal. About eight pieces plastic. So one... And they were right. At the end of the day, there really wasn't that much more to talk about. This is our last episode of All the Only Ones. Thank you so much for listening. If you're looking for a way to support more storytelling like this at NPR, please consider signing up for Embedded Plus. Embedded is NPR's home for ambitious journalism, and Embedded Plus helps us keep bringing you the stories behind the headlines. You'll also get to listen to every Embedded series sponsor-free, including the next one coming up in this feed in just a few weeks. Find out more at plus.npr.org slash embedded. Or find the Embedded channel in Apple and check out all the series we featured. All the Only Ones is written and hosted by me, Lane Kaplan-Levinson. 
Our producers are Max Friedman, Skylar Swenson, Abby Wendell, and me. Editing by Raina Cohen, Brenna Farrell, Bilal Qureshi, Katie Simon, Liana Simstrom, and sensitivity editing by Cassius Adair. Our engineer is Josh Newell. Our senior supervising producer is Cher Vinson. Our intern is Jose Sandoval. Special thanks to Nina Patek, Sam J. Leeds, and Lauren Gonzalez. Also thanks to Eli Conley, Austin Sibley, Aaron Reed, Cam Ogden, Hansi Stokes, Jovan Kallenberg, Burns, Eve Abrams, Lou Olkowski, Maria Paz Gutierrez, and the folks at the Transgender Resource Center of New Mexico. And a huge thanks to Jules Gill-Peterson for being our historical guide and lending her scholarship to this entire series. Our voiceover actors for this episode are Eli Scherer as Dr. Newman and Theo Guerin as Georgina. The NPR execs are Yolanda Sanguani, Irene Noguchi, and Anya Grunman. Our fact checkers are Kevin Vocal and Will Chase. Our original theme music is by Kyle Kidd and Sound on Tape. If you or someone you know may be considering suicide or are in crisis, call or text 988 to reach the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. I'm Lane Kaplan-Levinson, and this is All the Only Ones from NPR. Hey, I hear you have a birthday coming up. Yeah, you. If you're listening to this, that means you have a birthday coming up eventually. And here at Life Kit, we want it to be a special one. Magic can happen and good luck can happen and serendipity can happen if we're open to it. How to have a good birthday, even if you're not a birthday person. That's on the Life Kit podcast from NPR. On NPR's Throughline. We cannot function for 24 hours without COBOL because it's in our smartphone, our tablet, our laptop. And as a consequence, the lives of the people living in that part of the Congo descended into just a catastrophe. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jesse Thorne. Why did Cola Scola write a bonkers, extremely fictionalized play about Mary Todd Lincoln? Well, you know, it was 2020 and we were all so isolated. I I just started doing research. uh, But the truth is, no, I just thought of it. We'll talk about that and more on Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR.